all. Welcome to the Chicago Justice Podcast. I'm your host, Tracy Siska, also Executive Director of the Chicago Justice Project. Find out more about what we do at chicagojustice.org. Get involved at cjpnation.org. And if you want to donate and support, the Patreon link will be in the show notes. If you're listening to this for the first, the podcast for the first time, please hit subscribe. If you're on YouTube, subscribe and like. Mash that bell so you get alerts when we post. Really appreciate that. That all helps out our channel and the podcast. Real quick note, we have two more episodes of season three coming the next couple of weeks. After that, we're going to take about a week or two break, and we're going to start bringing you season four, which is going to bring big changes to what is on, the, what kind of content is in the podcast, and what is exclusively to YouTube and our Patreon. I'll bring, be bringing you more information about that in the coming weeks. Thank you so much for tuning in today. Really appreciate it. So today we're covering the Pretrial Fairness Act or the PFTA. There's going to be some acronyms in the show today. Electronic Monitoring or EM and the Cook County Sheriff's Office run by Sheriff Tom Dart. So what is electronic monitoring or EM? How does it work? How do we use it? We talked today to Kareem Butler, a pretrial justice fellow at the Chicago Appleseed Center for Fair Courts, to answer just those questions. We also dig in a little to the little bit to the problems with the Cook County Sheriff's Office and their response both to electronic monitoring and how that runs and how the courts run it, and also the Pretrial Fairness Act or the PFTA and their response that seems like resistance or rebellion against the act. And what you're going to get into with DART, and this has been in the media a little bit, but not anywhere near enough, is that there was he was on some kind of panel, and he said too many dangerous people are on EM. Now, because since 2014, with the Chicago Police Department's hyper-concentration on arresting gun possessors or going pursuing gun possessors, Rather than going after the people that actually commit violent offenses with the gun, it is a felony to possess a gun in Illinois without a FOID card, but it is not a violent crime. We've talked about that, or we'll be talking about that on our Patreon channel very soon. Dart and Rahm Emanuel um, in previous administrations and Lori Lightfoot's last four years and her uh, superintendent, David Brown, for that same period of time, all tried to change the definition of violent crime to include just possessing a gun illegally. And that's all it is. The, the crime is called unlawful, uh, unlawful use of a weapon. And everyone thinks, oh my God, for that title, you must actually have to use the weapon. No, 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 no. It just means you possess the gun without having a fire owner's identification card. That's all it is. Well, the over-reliance on the police department on arresting people possessing guns in their pursuit of that has meant there's all kinds of increased people for those crimes out on bail or sitting rotting in Cook County Jail, what the Pretrial Fairness Act did, is forced, um, basically forced in this bail reform, basically, which basically means we're not going to let someone sit in jail waiting for trial just because they're poor, when at the same time, someone who's got the money can post money and get out. No, 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 no. If you're going to be in jail, you're going to in wait the trial, then you're all going to be in jail. And if you're some can get out, then everyone's going to get out, right? That's what the pretrial fairness action did. Dart, Lori Lightfoot, David Brown, her superintendent, don't like that. And they kept blaming and pointing to the courts. And so Dart said on this panel, hey, 
too many people on too many dangerous people on electronic monitoring. Well, can you point to a huge or large or even noticeable uptick in violent crime since this has been going on? And the, the bail reform started in September of 2017. As I remind you, crime went down in 17, 18, and 19 in Chicago, and then uh, started going up in early 20, as it did where many cities around the country, mainly because of the pandemic. And when pressed about, hey, point us to those violent crime uptick, he couldn't and had to admit it didn't exist. So it's just a moral objection he has. Damn the science, damn the evidence. And if you look at Mayor Lightfoot, same thing. David Brown, same thing. David Brown's known to be a liar. He was proven to that in a um, in the police accountability system in Dallas. He served a suspension for lying. Damn the facts, damn the science. So what we're talking about today is how does the sheriff's office administer EM? What is EM? How does the sheriff's office and court administer electronic monitoring? Who's on electronic who was on electronic monitoring before? Who's on it now because of the PFTA? And how does that all run? And what is the damage to people that are on electronic monitoring? And I'll tell you right now, there's endless science now to prove that when you stick people out on probation or parole or even pretrial release and you give them a heightened level of, of scrutiny or oversight or restrictions or reporting obligations that is not fit or calibrated correctly to the amount of supervision they really should need, they end up failing at much higher rates than if the, cal if the calibration was correct. It just does. And there's science to prove that. But DART, Lightfoot, David Brown, damn the science. It's funny, Lightfoot was all about the science when COVID, for the most part, but not about the science and her, you know, her justice reforms. That's for sure. And it showed when they fired, her and David Brown fired the head of the Office of Constitutional Policing. This is just who they are. Okay. So to do all this, we talked to Kareem Butler, and um, I hope you enjoy the interview. I will be back with you after it. Kareem Butler, thank you so much for joining on the podcast. We really appreciate it. Sure. Happy to be here. All right. So today we're talking about electronic monitoring. Can you explain to my audience what is electronic monitoring for those who don't know? Sure. So electronic monitoring encompasses a couple of different, you know, uh, forms, but essentially it's the technology that's used uh, by the courts uh, to um, ex exert supervision over individuals either on a pretrial status or in a probationary status. Um, and there, it, it, like I said, it encompasses different forms of technology. There could be radio frequency, electronic monitoring devices, or GPS-powered uh, electronic monitoring devices. Okay, so in Cook County, this is administered by the courts, or I should say administered by the courts. People are assigned to electronic, electronic monitoring, mostly pretrial people, from the courts. Mm -hmm. The program's administered mm -hmm. by the Cook County Sheriff's Office, who, which is run by notorious or infamous or politically he's always <laughs> never shy to get in front of a camera tom dart right um okay who typically before the pretrial fairness act what was the who typically qualified for em i'm going to call it em ladies and gentlemen just so you know because i know the numbers have shifted greatly about the people that are on electronic monitoring now do we know like who was what was the typical 
person that would have been on electronic monitoring pre the passage of this law? Well, um, typically, for one, I would just emphasize that this program primarily affects um, lower income individuals and particularly people of color, especially black people throughout Cook County. Um, and, and so there's it primarily targets, you know, not only um, racial minorities throughout the county, but of course, as I mentioned, lower income individuals. And when you look at, you know, how the numbers have really fluctuated over time, um, you know, Cook County has for uh, decades really boasted a, a, a massive electronic monitoring population. Um, it's the largest uh, population of individuals placed on electronic monitoring of any uh, major urban jurisdiction. Um, and since, you know, the passage of the Pretrial Fairness Act and the reforms that have come with that, um, you know, and since COVID-19, we have seen some declines in the number of individuals on electronic monitoring. But um, what I would emphasize is the numbers that the population itself is still uh, really significant. It's, 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 it's on an average uh, day, the population of individuals on sheriffs on the sheriff's electronic monitoring program is over 2000. And uh, for the adult probation uh, electronic monitoring program, which is not, you know, for individuals in a pretrial status, mm -hmm. um, you know, we're, we're, it's, which is difficult to also ascertain um, because of, a, you know, issues with transparency. Um, the numbers are around a thousand above above a thousand. Um, and what I would what I would say is, as far as you know, what types of individuals and the types of charges that they're facing or the, the uh, offense categories of individuals who are placed on electronic monitoring in Cook County, um, we've seen some fluctuations. And in the report that we actually uh, co-authored and helped release in September of 2022, we outlined a couple of different categories and how they fluctuated over time. So we've seen individuals who were facing uh, drug charges on a, at, uh, in a pretrial status. We've seen those individuals um, uh, decrease, those individuals facing those specific charges decline over time. For individuals facing charges, for example, like gun possession charges, we have seen those, those uh, numbers go up. Um, so, but the overall number of individuals on electronic monitoring, particularly since COVID-19, has dropped. Um, it's, it is, but because of the, uh, the nature of Cook County's electronic monitoring, the fact that it has two separately run programs, one under the office of the chief judge, one under the sheriff, um, it can be, we, we have a better understanding of how many people are on electronic monitoring under the sheriff. Easier to obtain that information because of issues relating to public disclosure laws in Illinois, and an inability to really submit uh, requests for freedom of uh, Freedom of Information Act requests to our courts, there's a, lo a lot that we don't know on a day-to-day -day basis about who's on electronic monitoring under that program, under the office of the chief judge. But as far as the total is concerned, decreased a little bit. Um, but it, I, I would say that COVID-19 was a greater determinant of um, a greater marker of when we started to see the number of individuals go up during the pandemic. Since then, the numbers have crept down a little bit. And is your do you have a a theory as to why the numbers are creeping down? Is there just because there are more the judges 
are more willing to uh, hold people pre-trial now than they were during COVID's worst of times? You know, it's a, it's a difficult question to answer. I wouldn't, you know, um, I'd be speculating a little bit as to say, to say exactly why. I would, and I would just emphasize too, that these declines haven't been uh, particularly dramatic. Again, I would just emphasize, you know, the, the number of people on electronic monitoring in Cook County is still massive and it's, it far outpaces other major jurisdictions. For example, New York and LA, which have massive systems, um, massive systems, you know, case management systems um, have numbers in the hundreds of individuals placed on electronic monitoring on a pretrial basis. Um, whereas, you know, Cook County, we're, we're far and away from that. So even though there has been some decline, you know, I wouldn't, uh, I, I wouldn't feel comfortable speculating exactly as to why that has okay. uh, come to play. Is, so I think I took that the wrong way that I should have taken what you said. So Cook County is this huge EM population compared to LA and New York. Mm -hmm. You know, especially if LA and New York are in the hundreds, New York is three times the size of Chicago, plus ladies and mm -hmm. gentlemen, plus mm -hmm. eight or 900,000 extra people. Um, is that because, is it because New York and LA uh, have a smaller list of things that people are out that have, that require them to be on EM while they're waiting pretrial and they're out? Or is it because New York and LA are holding more people in their jails? Do we know that difference? I would say it's it's has more to do with, you know, Cook County has a legacy of reliance on electronic monitoring that differs from other other most other jurisdictions. You know, most other jurisdictions they have electronic monitoring as an option in their toolkit of community supervision, right? So it's it, 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 there's a spectrum of community supervision tools that the courts or whoever's monitoring um, an electronic monitoring program can impose on individuals on a pretrial basis. So, you know, there's intensive community supervision that would involve, you know, meeting with a pretrial services officer periodically. Um, and that, for example, wouldn't necessarily involve electronic monitoring. Uh, electronic monitoring is one form of community supervision. Um, I would, and it's, in Cook County, there's been a legacy of reliance on it as sort of the, the primary means through which people can be observed or monitored in while in their community pre-trial. Um, and that has really, to me, played the largest role in why, compared to a lot of other jurisdictions, we see such, you know, an outsized use of electronic monitoring here as opposed to elsewhere. Yeah, and I'm sure... Well, let me ask you, do we know the, the, the economics of this? Is it cheaper to put someone on EM than it is to have them on intense supervision in the community? No, it's, it, you know, it's actually more than double the cost of, you know, regular intensive supervision. Um, and, and, you know, I, I would also emphasize there's no uh, significant or meaningful evidence that electronic monitoring has a, a statistically significant impact on the likelihood that someone will reoffend. There's no evidence that it has any benefit on or impact on failure to failure failure to appear rates. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, it's it's both there's there's no evidence suggesting that, 
you know, electronic monitoring provides some sort of public safety benefit that other forms of community supervision, um, that other forms of community supervision uh, don't. And there's no evidence that it is having an, a, a positive impact on people's appearance rates in court, right? I mean, the, the evidence that um, has come out from, you know, the report that we put out in September, um, you know, highlighted the fact that for the majority of individuals on both electronic monitoring programs, you know, the, the vast majority are reappearing in court at their scheduled court dates, and a very, very small percentage of individuals are being are, are uh, reoffending either while on EM or after their stint on electronic monitoring. And it costs more. And it costs more. And it costs more. It's inefficient. Wow. It's also difficult to commute. You know, the fact that these two programs are are housed separately, on top of the fact that it's costly, means that you know it's also difficult to. It, the the separation in the management of these programs makes it difficult for you know uh, communication to happen between the administrators or staff who are overseeing the program uh, or overseeing an individual's stint on the program and the court. So that and that communication creates problems. You know, and people on electronic monitoring, if they need to, you know, ha have an, a request approved for them to, you know, um, be able to go to their child's uh, play or to be able to attend a specific appointment, right? Historically, that has been something that requires a lot of time in order for that approval to be you know, provided to that individual. And having these two programs managed separately creates you know, greater lag and delays in things like that uh, moving along. Mm. Oh. Yeah, it's, it's kind of ridiculous. You would think that they'd have some kind of electronic system where you could file that request and it would take a very short order or period of time for that to happen. Mm -hmm. um, I can pay my taxes electronically. The federal government gets my money. <laughs> they should be able to request it. Go see your, you know, for instance, go to the grocery store or something like that. Right, right. Okay. So what did, before we get in the dark, what did the Pretrial Fairness Act, what was its impact on electronic monitoring? Sure, yeah. So the Pretrial Fairness Act did a few things. For one, the Pretrial Fairness Act, you know, before the Pretrial Fairness Act was put into place, people could be routinely denied what's referred to as essential movement um, by a judge, right? So they could, they, they'd, be the, they'd be in bond court, you know, which is their first appearance before a judge. Um, and uh, the, if the judge decided to place them on electronic monitoring per their conditions of release, um, in a lot of cases, judges would say, okay, EM with no movement, meaning that that person, you know, has to, if they're placed on house arrest, that person, if they want to be able to go do something, um, they have to get advanced approval from the, from the court, right? Uh, what the Pretrial Fairness Act did is require that individuals have essentially two windows per week, um, that are essentially two 12-hour windows per week where they can accomplish various essential tasks, right? Where they can go to the store, where they can handle appointments, where they can handle other, you know, necessary needs or daily tasks. Um, and it's designed to be able to provide them with that opportunity without fear of, of reprisal. Um, and, and that's one really important thing that the Pretrial Fairness Act did because a lot of people historically would be 
um, reincarcerated if they tried to go handle a necessary you know, task, if they were trying to go to the store, if they had to go to an appointment or if it was an emergency, right? If they needed to leave, um, it, it really created a, a situation where they were putting themselves, unfortunately, or the, the nature of the program was putting them at risk of reincarceration. Sheriff's deputies show up, they bring that person back into custody, and now that person could potentially be in jail all the way up until their trial date. Um, the next thing the law also has done is create a system where every 60 days, for most, for, for most individuals, they'll have an opportunity to have their conditions, specifically their electronic monitoring conditions, reevaluated by a judge. Um, this gives them a chance to figure out whether that person can be placed on a less restrictive, less harmful form of pretrial release um, uh, while still ensuring public safety and uh, future appearance in court. Um, and then also everybody placed on electronic monitoring, specifically home confinement electronic monitoring under the Pretrial Fairness Act is required to be given credit toward any potential sentence they receive upon conviction. So if you spent so if someone spends two years on electronic monitoring, if they are convicted at trial for whatever charges they're facing, those two years they spend on electronic monitoring are to be credited toward their sentence. So those are, those are in a nutshell, the biggest reforms that the Pretrial Fairness Act made to electronic monitoring. So are you saying, I think you just said they weren't given credit for their time on electronic monitoring. So if they spent two years before the PFTA passed, if they spent two years on home confinement, they weren't given that. So if they got a sentence of three years, they weren't credited with the two years before that? Yes, it wasn't it, this. Yeah, people, plenty of people could serve time on electronic monitoring. It could be, you know, two, three years. It could be yep. some months, however long it may have been. And that, that wouldn't necessarily be credited toward any sentence they may have received. Um, this now makes it, you know, a requirement under law that they have to be given credit toward any potential sentence, right? Which is, which is important because, you know, we want to, you know, it's important that people understand too, electronic monitoring isn't some very, you know, um, isn't some minimally invasive, harmless form of supervision. It's essentially an alternative form of incarceration. And a lot of people refer to it as e-carceration for a reason, right? Um, people have trouble, you know, people historically because of the strict rules, especially in Cook County under electronic monitoring, you know, things as simple as just going outside to take the trash out, going to, you know, to do laundry, um, watching your, your kid play out front could put you at jeopardy of being rearrested. So the, the nature of the program is, has, has been really draconian and, and the law has in, in a few ways tried to make it less restrictive and less harmful and to ensure that people have a chance at um, avoiding future time in a traditional carceral setting by crediting them for whatever time they spend on electronic monitoring home confinement. Okay, what has been, um, what is the, I guess, what is the, can you give us some insight into the history of the Cook County Sheriff's administration of the program? Mm. Is her reputation as being good? Is it being not great? Where are we? I mean, it's the Cook County criminal justice system. So right. I have my preconceived ideas of what that was going to be like. Right. Yeah. Um, so 
not good in the, the, the short version is, you know, the, the Cook County Sheriff's uh, EM program has been one of, is, is regarded as being really strict, not only across the country, but within Illinois, right? There are other jurisdictions that, you know, electron, their electronic monitoring is used statewide, right? It's operated by the Illinois Department of Corrections. But the Cook County electronic monitoring program is unique in the sense that its restrictions are uh, the, the restrictions that are imposed on individuals pretrial typically are steeper than the restrictions placed on individuals pretrial or on individuals pretrial elsewhere in, in Illinois. Um, and the the sheriff's office, even when it comes to the the pretrial fairness act and the reforms that I mentioned, the sheriff's office has, in in a lot of ways, narrowly interpreted features of the law, these reforms, to make sure that, you know, to basically create a situation where as few people as possible are benefiting from these reforms. Um, for example, when it comes to this essential movement window, right, this has really been created as, and should be observed as a floor, right? Uh, not a ceiling on what's possible when it comes to essential movement and, and freedom of movement. Um, the sheriff's office is really uh, conceived of this as, you know, a ceiling as opposed to a floor. So no more than those 12 hours will be afforded to individuals on a pretrial basis a lot of times if they're on Sheriff's EM in Cook County. Um, 12 hours, excuse me, two 12-hour windows. And the reality is, is, you know, that reform is important, but there are a number of situations where someone may need to leave their, wherever their, their home is or wherever they are serving out their electronic monitoring stint. You know, it could be a situation where someone needs to flee because of safety reasons, because the, wherever they are is no longer a safe place, whether it's a domestic violence, whether it's caused by domestic violence, whether there's some other emergency that they need to flee the home for. Um, and the, the sheriff's office has really created situations where rather than um, where rather than providing people with an opportunity to have freedom of movement uh, in on a on a reasonable basis, they are narrowly interpreting that feature of the law to make sure that outside of those two 12 hour windows that people can have throughout the week, um, they are still highly and heavily monitored and restricted from leaving wherever their home address is. Um, and, I, and then I would also add to this feature of the law that uh, requires individuals to have, you know, a status hearing essentially every 60 days. You know, that's in order to make sure that they can potentially be placed on less restrictive conditions for pretrial release. It, there have been cases where individuals haven't been provided with that opportunity to have their status hearing um, at the 60-day the mark when they've been placed on electronic monitoring. Instead, they're languishing you know, on electronic monitoring for 100, 120 days, however, you know, however many, well beyond what is now required by law. Um, so there, there are a few ways in which you know, the sheriff and the, the, the county has, have been creating situations where you know, it's the, the, the reforms that have been put in place aren't fully reaching their potential. And historically, you know, this office has created situations where even for something as simple as just 
going to take out the trash. Um, people can be reincarcerated. False alerts are also, I just would add a major problem um, for electronic monitoring technology. And in Cook County, you know, a lot of people deal with false alerts when they're on a pretrial basis. You know, the GPS technology that people are placed on um, isn't infallible, right? None of the technology that people are placed on electronic monitoring is infallible, but the sheriff specifically relies heavily on GPS technology. Everyone on uh, electronic monitoring under the sheriff's program is on a GPS tracker. And you can have drift where it seems like this person is away from wherever they're supposed with where wherever they are permitted to be, right? When in reality, they haven't violated any of the terms of their pretrial release. And because of that false alert, you have individuals who are, you know, being met by sheriff's deputies who are being arrested, you know, um, in front of their families, um, who are, you know, having unnecessary contact with law enforcement because there's this automatic assumption that they must have intentionally or willfully violated the terms of their release. Um, and, and so the, the, the county, specifically the sheriff's electronic monitoring program, does not have a positive reputation among community members, especially the, you know, the, the, the communities that are most often targeted by electronic monitoring. All right, this is one of the last questions. Why do you think one of them, could you hazard a guess and you may not want to guess, but what the motivations are for the sheriff's office to be this way? If all the numbers you, you, you um, detail to us early on are true, and I, 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 I'm 100% believing that they are, what is going on with the sheriff's office? I think the sheriff's part of the the sheriff's you know commitment to the electronic monitoring program I think is the same it, it aligns with the same overall belief in this tough on crime punitive approach to dealing with public safety issues in our communities so I think part of the sheriff's commitment to this issue is political in nature. I think when you when you look at this issue and especially the way public safety is discussed in Chicago, mm -hmm. right? We have you know a lot of people who focus really heavily on this issue of gun possession and gun violence, right? Mm -hmm. So I mentioned earlier the number of people who are facing gun possession charges on electronic monitoring has been going up steadily. While drug charges have been coming down, gun possession charges or the, or the number of people facing those charges on EM has been going up in Cook County. Um, I think, you know, that is the reason why I bring that up as an example is because in most situations, people who are arrested for gun possession charges, there was no violence that occurred, right? A lot mm -hmm. of people who are being arrested for gun possession charges are either on class, facing class four, class three felonies in which no violence occurred. And in many cases, there was no prior felony uh, offense or no prior uh, gun possession offense, or it's for a class two felony in which for example they 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 may be a a, a felon a, they may have a felony record um, for a prior gun possession charge in either case many of these individuals the vast majority of people placed on electronic monitoring from gun possession are there without having committed any act of violence with that firearm right with the with the alleged firearm that 
led to them being put on EM. And I bring that up because if we're so concerned about public safety, if if that's our main concern, then why is it why are we placing so many people on electronic monitoring who are low risk when it comes to public safety, who have not uh, who are not facing charges for which they have harmed another person or put someone else in put someone else's safety in jeopardy. I think it's important to to point out that if if we're concerned about public safety, we should see that borne out in who or or how resources are being applied in terms of electronic monitoring and in, in, in terms of who's languishing on these devices. Um, and so I would say, you know, the sheriff is in many ways responding to a lot of a lot of public backlash and responding to the narrative surrounding public safety in Chicago and in Cook County. There is a belief that, you know, um, in order to address public safety concerns, we have to be really punitive. We have to have as wide of a net of surveillance and incar of, of incarceration as possible. Um, and, and, you know, the data just doesn't support that that's an effective approach. Yeah, it's... Um... I, for one, am happy that it seems like politically he's stuck. Um, I'm all for mm -hmm. Dart retiring. I think that would be a wonderful, wonderful thing. Um, <laughs> but he is politically stuck. Um, I don't, I mean, he's, I think he may run for Kim Fox's office. I think he will lose that office. Um, but I don't think he has another um, office that he can go on. I do think this is all political. He was on some... Um, he was at some event where he's on a panel and he was talking about electronic monitoring and going off about how many people are there for gun offenses. And people said, well, how many of those are the vast majority of those, or if not all of those, have they committed violence? No. Have a large, a large percentage of them reoffended? No, but I still don't mm -hmm. like it. And it's like, Oh, it was like listening to a white male version of Lori Lightfoot, right? It was the same <laughs> rhetoric that wasn't based on anything other than their very Trumpian views that they know better than everyone else and they know better than the science. Um, people criticize right. Trump for spouting out about stuff, but we have our own people in our city that spout out about stuff that is in totally in denial of all the data. And the idea that any people like us who support these programs that can back it up with data and science are somehow anti-public safety. Um, and I know I can tell you from the research science criminologically, we know if you over, if you put too many restrictions on people in their probationary period or on parole mm -hmm. um, or on pretrial, the more you heap on restrictions, the more likely they are to fail. And exactly. when you put people who don't deserve the restrictions on more restrictive things than they should have been on, their likelihood of failing is skyrockets. Mm -hmm. I know there was big studies done in Kansas and in other places where it's just like, no, you need to understand who you're putting there and why you're putting them there. They have to understand why you're putting them there. If they think it's ridiculous right. and it doesn't need it, you're in trouble. And that's trouble for all of us. We need right. systems where they get through these things without reoffending at the highest possible rate and in the best possible conditions. So they're less likely to reoffend down the, down the line. Um mm -hmm. 
But that doesn't that doesn't make it into the Chicago media most of the time. It does not make it into the political <laughs> discourse most of the time. And we are very short-term thinking people. And when you get politically um, aggressive people, they do things like this um, for the headlines or to make sure they stay out of the headlines. As if for some reason, it would be Dart's fault if someone on electronic monitoring re-offended. Right. They don't understand. Um, right. And, and, you know, there are calls right now, there, there have been, you know, attempts right now to end the essential movement provisions within the Pretrial Fairness mm -hmm. Act to, you know, go through the legislature um, and pass a bill undermining those uh, uh, protections within the Pretrial Fairness Act. And, you know, on the basis of this one, on the basis of a few small incidents in which, you know, a, a, a very slim percentage of the of the overall number of people on Sheriff CM um, were rearrested, right? Uh, some for violent offenses, right? And to that, one one thing I would say is, you know, are we, if if we're trying to achieve, if we believe that ending mass incarceration is solely dependent on having a 100% success rate with all of our reforms, we'll never end it. We'll never get away from it. Um, and I think, you know, the the other thing that, you know, these attempts to, to undermine essential movement, which again is a floor, is is it's not a ceiling for progress. The other thing that they miss is, you know, they assume that, okay, instead of essential movement, we can just rely on a judge to mandate that someone can is allowed to go from work to home, work to school, we can allow for a judge to design the parameters for someone's electronic monitoring regime. The problem with that is we've been there. We've done that, right? We, we've seen plenty of individuals who were denied movement outright by judges in Cook County, right? Meaning anywhere they wanted to go, if they were, you know, confined to their house, anywhere else they wanted to go required advanced approval. If that event, if if you have an emergency or, you know, if you're uh, going, if you're going to be, um, if, if your spouse or your partner is going into labor and you need to be at the hospital, you need that approval immediately. You can't wait mm -hmm. a week, two weeks. You, If you need treatment for an urgent medical crisis, you can't wait necessarily a week, two weeks in order to get to the doctor. You need that approval now, and in, in what's happened in a lot of those cases where you're solely relying on a judge to a judge to provide the parameters within which people can um, engage, you know, be on their EM regime. What happens is they run into barriers in terms of getting to necessary appointments, being able to live their lives functionally, right? And 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 so it's you know this idea that we should go back to that we've been there, we've done that, it doesn't work. Even when judges are creating these parameters that are meant to, you know, um, guide how people exist on electronic monitoring, it's in many in in many cases it, they're not accounting for everything. They're not accounting for every need or every emergency that might arise and require someone to have the opportunity to leave their home or wherever they're placed on home confinement. Yeah, I mean, there, this always brings me back to a phrase early on in Law and Order, the show, back when it first mm. started, because I'm that old. And the head prosecutor was telling the other prosecutor, in politics, there's two options. Do something, do nothing. 
mm-hmm. do nothing has less risk. Right. So yes, Dart and yeah. everyone and the mayor and everyone wants the judges to make the decisions about the monitoring and the movement and stuff, because then the 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 if it goes wrong, it's on them. Yeah. Right. Because right. we're 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 in a we're a city that if one one case goes wrong out of a ten thousand, that's it. We got to change the rules to make sure that one thing never happens, as if that's going to do it. Right. Right. Exactly. You know. So. Lots of inefficiencies with the program, and um, you know, we, we aside from advocating for them to consolidate the program under one office to avoid all of these nightmares and communication and other, you know, uh, costly problems. You know, that Cook County needs to massively reduce the number of people it places on electronic monitoring. Period. Um, and it's you know, it would be to not only a public safety benefit, but it would also you know just alleviate a lot of the harms it causes people who are ordered to electronic monitoring in their families. Yeah, it, it's hard to have an atmosphere where you can do that when you have a mayor and a police superintendent who both just left, who constantly were appointing the bad lenient judges as mm-hmm. for the crime problems in Chicago. And it cost for people in administration, they just kept quitting because she was lying, but it didn't deter her. It's hard to have <laughs> um, conversations about what the data says and what things, how things should be um, to make people more successful in this program when that atmosphere has been so poisoned. Right. Yeah, it's it's toxic. And we need to, you know, continue. That's what we're trying to do is push the narrative away from a lot of that toxicity and, you know, actually relying on evidence. Yeah, I, hopefully we'll see that day in Chicago. All right. <laughs> Green Butler from the Chicago Council of Lawyers and the Appleseed Fund. Thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks again to Kareem Butler for sitting down with us. We really appreciate it. It was a great interview. Hope you really enjoyed that. The Lying by Dart, by Lightfoot, by David Brown, the poisoning of the well, the alt-right in Chicago, is not helping solve the problems that Chicago has. Chicago does have problems, but nobody wants to address the main issue. And I'll keep harping on this podcast. I'll be harping on the next um, season also. It's poverty. No one wants to really address that. They throw token amounts of money at it, and they blame the courts. Lightfoot was blamed the courts, the sheriff, uh, Tony Preckwinkle, Cook County board president, Kim Fox, the Cook County state's attorney, everyone but her. She was in the house of power. She could have done something more to address the root causes. She loves talking about them in, in, in the rhetoric, just not governing to them to address them. Instead, we scapegoat and exploit for political benefit, which is what the alt-right in Chicago does. Lopez, Spizzato, Napolitano, Beal, and we Riley. You can go down the list of people that if they were in any other city besides Chicago that is controlled by the Democrats, they'd be considered Republicans. And like, like Lopez, Spizzato, Napolitano, alt-right. Alt-right, no doubt about it. This exploitation is a tradition in Chicago. It just is. It just is. And it's sad. The PFTA is backed by science. It's backed by science and facts. So is bail reform. But don't tell that to Dart, Lightfoot, David Brown. That's science they don't care about. That's science that doesn't agree with their political agenda. They're alt-right views in this aspect. It just doesn't. 
Okay, ladies and gentlemen, thanks again for tuning in. I really appreciate it. Once again, in a couple weeks, we got a couple more weeks of season three. We have interviews set up with Carlos Ballesteros and Kelly Garcia at Black Club. I believe we're going to get, we're going to be double teamed there. And then also in another episode with the Chicago Inspector General, Deborah Witzberg, to talk about a report that the office has put out related to Rule 14 violations. That is, means officers who were accused of lying during an internal investigation and then uh, was sustained and then they were found guilty um, by the police board if they had long suspensions, but not fired. And there was a recent article that came out based on, you know, that report said there's hundreds of officers, uh, or at least 100, I'm not sure hundreds is right, but at least 100 officers that have Rules 14 sustained um, misconduct allegations against them, and they still kept their job. How? No one knows. It's been a bane of our existence at CJP, the bane of why we have the police board website so people can see what's going on. If you want to get to that, cpbinfocenter.org. Okay, so we have those two sets of interviews coming, and then season four will probably take a week or two off, and then season four, big changes are coming. Also, changes are coming to our YouTube channel with a bunch of uh, unique and independent content, stuff that'll be independent from the podcast, and then we're also going to have content flowing to our Patreon um, at least once a week. Okay, thank you, everyone. I appreciate it. I'll be back with you hopefully next week.